Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So, hello and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. In a moment, we've got a, an interview with an actor from the Leeds Playhouse production of Lord of the Flies, which was a very powerful piece. We took two of our young people from Chapel FM to see it, Oliver and Amos, and they interviewed Jason Battersby about his role and about his acting life. That's in a little while. And last up in the programme, we've got Going to the Devil, an anarchic, surreal tale by the writer Martin Riley, which was recorded originally for Writing on Air last year. So a chance to hear that again, or if you haven't heard it, to hear it for the first time. But first of all, a feature about community psychology. I went to a conference in Leeds recently. What can we do? A day to celebrate all things community psychology. So what is community psychology? You will find out now. I believe that one fine day. I believe that one fine day. So my name is Sarah Bradley. Um, I am a clinical psychologist and um, who works at Leeds University and in... Um, community in Barnsley with uh, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services and um, I'm here today to try and promote a profession which is called community psychology, so a bit different from clinical. Um, And the way it's different is that it aims to go beyond individual focus. Sometimes clinical psychology can be a bit one-to-one and um, sometimes a bit individually kind of um, focused and narrow and very therapy-centric. So community psychology aims to work with communities um, in the broadest of sense that community might be geographical, it might be an interest, it might be to do with demographics, um, it could be anything and um, the community psychologist would go into that community and think with the community of what they need, so it's very needs based and look at what strengths and resilience is already in the community, how they're doing, what's, what's making them tick, why people are staying in, connected to that community and then think of any ways in which we could improve it together. My name is Liam Ennis, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist and I work in acute mental health services. It's been good, I, th- I think the thing that's uh, really stood out for me is uh, having concrete actions that I want to take forward. I'm really looking forward to getting out into the community because I spend a lot of time inside the hospital um, and it's got me some practical ideas for um, understanding the community better and bringing that into the hospital, maybe bring the hospital out into the community. Hello, I'm Howard Johnson, I'm a clinical psychologist, I work in uh, Barnsley Community Mental Health Services. I think um, culturally and certainly within the profession there's a very kind of individual focus on people's problems and I think that's uh, also true in wider society and across physical health as well. So I think the um, bringing to mind of the wider conditioning factors that influence people's particular difficulties is is very important and actually part of what's really going on um, that we need to take into account when when trying to help people. It is a profession, mainly in um, South America, America, Canada, Australia. Um, It hasn't taken off as much in the UK. Um, 
and I'm not, I'm not, I can't speak to that, I'm not sure why, um, but there are three courses, I think, at master's level, so one in York, one in Manchester, and one in London, which would train you to be a specific community psychologist, which would then enable you to go and work, say, with the government, with in public health, with councils, um, as a community worker, so a variety of different roles that you could have under that specific profession. I would say that clinical psychology does overlap with community psychology a lot, hence my interest and the fact that most of the people here today are clinical psychologists with an interest in community psychology. It's just that the structures and the systems that we work in, which is mainly the NHS, are not set up to be more proactive and preventative. They tend to be more reactive. So the, the a metaphor that, that works is that um, people keep pushing people into a, the stream and clinical psychologists keep fishing them out and helping. It's not that we're not helpful, but that the community psychology would want to look at why people are getting pushed into the stream in the first place. What are those reasons why people are suffering and try and change those as opposed to just um, helping at the, at the point of reaction? I'm Lisa Newton. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm, I guess... I'm, I'm changing jobs from a um, quite structured medical environment to homelessness teams, and so I'm trying to get a bit of a reset in my thinking about becoming a, getting my confidence back of, in being more radical again. So, in the services I was working before, the systems were quite set in place, and it was hard to push against them, and so you got quite squashed by pushing. And so, I want to be able to push more, change more, feel a bit more um, confident about challenging things and accepting the things that I dislike or disapprove of less. Um, Yeah, making change where change is possible. I think it's about... um working uh, to get the to access the resources and strengths that lie in communities um, to help uh, them develop maybe the thing to add is yeah like you're saying it's thinking about what in a what in the systems is creating a lot of this um, like lack of well-being and this distress so the distress is being seen as coming from a society coming from our sort of wider structures and having the opportunity to to think about well what can we do about that then and that's what we've been doing today I think like what can we do about that when we're often in like organisations that just see individuals as having the problem within themselves Uh, well I I didn't know much about community psychology and um and I, for, for quite a long time now, uh, over the pandemic, um, I haven't really had much chance to meet up with people working in, in all different kinds of fields that I, I probably know from years ago, many of them. And uh, so it's been really nice opportunity to get together and to meet people as well. Um, well, selfishly, I'm new to Leeds. So I wanted to know what was going on, which would fit under the community psychology umbrella. Um, I'm originally from Newcastle, so there's a lot going on up there and I know a lot about what's happening up there. So that's from a really selfish point of view I wanted to do that but I also felt like there wasn't a space um, that I'd found for people to come together that were passionate about social justice creating social change um, working in this kind of community minded way um, so I wanted to bring people together with the hope that they would connect with each other that they would um, learn from each other and that they might find ways of taking things forward together it can sometimes feel quite lonely and isolating doing this kind of work especially as a clinical psychologist and because it is a little bit out of mainstream so I wanted to give people a a chance to find strength in numbers Um, so it's it's nice to be amongst people where I'm 
I don't feel like I'm the odd one out saying yes but what about this and everyone's saying yes but what about this and that's quite reassuring quite quite comforting really I think it's about connecting with like-minded people I think often at work we've got a bit of sort of tunnel vision we've got pressures on us to see clients in a day and we don't get the chances to connect with other people and think about the community side of things Um, and I think we need to have more time and more space to do that and yeah we need to fight for that Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. the backbone of the plot how it's about um a group of children who get stranded on an island and sort of need to fight for survival um i'll be completely honest no um so after a plane crash because i think it's set during world war Two, um a group of uh kids are the only survivors uh, and there are no adults. So then the main character, who is called Ralph, um, so in, in the book it's a boy, but in the play it's a girl. Um, she uh, gets stranded there and meets Piggy, who becomes her friend, and then a load of other people, including... Um, who's your character called again? Um, let's start at the beginning. So, uh, how did you become an actor and then, like, eventually get to get into Lord of the Flies? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I started mainly just doing it in school, doing school productions, um, a few extracurricular things. So, um, I started dancing from a very young age. Um, but yeah, a lot of out of school stuff. And then, um, in sixth form, I went to sixth form and uh, I had a teacher who was uh, my drama teacher at the time and he suggested that I uh, go to to study drama at, at uni, um, which actually up until that point I'd never considered this to be a thing that you could do. Um, but uh, I think it made sense because it was probably what I was best at in school. Um and so I sort of, I, I went away and, and studied drama for three years. Um, and then out of that, there's this, this whole process of uh, getting an agent, which is someone who uh, finds jobs for you to then audition for. Uh, because uh, it's such a busy industry and the the output of... of um, stuff uh out there uh there's just constantly loads of stuff going on and it's it's very hard for you to keep track of everything by yourself so you 
sort of need someone to manage uh, that aspect of the work. And uh, yeah, I just had a, an audition through for Lord of the Flies. Um, and uh, I turned up to that and uh, luckily I got the job. So going over to Lord of the Flies, who was the um, the most joking, messing around actor? The most messing around actor? Oh, probably me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when did you first realise that you could make a real career out of acting? I, I think it probably goes back to uh, being in school and just having someone talk to me properly about, uh, you know, the, the potential to... Uh, you know, actually do acting. And I, I think especially when you're younger, you very much think of, like, acting and then you think of, like, huge movie stars. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, the, never saying that couldn't happen, but, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to make a living in acting or uh, a lot of performance. There's so many different sectors of the industry, uh, yeah, so there's always a way to make a living. What is, like, for you, the standout or most memorable scene in Lord of the Flies? Uh, most memorable scene? I think, in terms of impact, that would be uh, the death of one of the characters called Simon, um, which is how we end the first half of the show. Um, I think that's when everything really takes a time for the worse. Uh, and I think you can hear it in the audience because it gets very silent yeah. after that, that moment. So I think that is very much the most impactful, uh, most memorable scene, I think. We, well, we, have a, we had a fight director, so um, uh, we had a fight director called Kate. Um, I forget her last name. Um, but she does a lot of fight choreography, so she does a lot of work on Coronation Street and EastEnders, um, uh, and also a lot of other shows around the country. Um, and essentially she comes in, and she's very knowledgeable. She also coaches um, England boxers. Um, <laughs> so she's very knowledgeable in, in all aspects of fighting, um, and specialises in stage combat. So she comes in, reads the play and goes, okay, we'll work out what we're doing. And we as actors, it's very easy for us because we just do what she tells us yeah. to do, essentially. Um, but yeah, it's a very physical moment and you've got to make sure that everyone's safe, um, especially the guy that you're killing. <laughs> you don't want to actually kill him, that would be quite bad. <laughs> um, I definitely enjoyed it. They, um... They've done it very well, but I've left it with a lot of mysteries I'm going to have to see at the end. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really liked all of the characters and the way that, like, you can sort of sense the way that, um, I think Jack was sort of the villain, you could say, was, like, very manipulative. And I liked how, like, steadily all of the characters sort of turned to his side and then they eventually kill Simon. And I, I really liked the sort of transition and the way the characters go from, like, school kids to savages. I'm not sure, I don't think it's gonna turn out well for 
Jack, and I don't think it's going to turn out well for many people. One thing I found impressive, every most shows I've been to here, they always do it with a person with some sort of disability. I think that's amazing. That whether, whether it's deaf or have to be in a wheelchair, it's good that they do that. When you decided that you were going to try and pursue acting as a career, was your biggest supporter across all of it? Oh, uh, my parents. <laughs> yeah, my my mum, my my dad. Uh, yeah, they were. Uh, they, uh, yeah, they just supported the the entire decision for me to to go into to arts, which I know not all parents sometimes you know uh, think that way, um, but yeah, they. You know, they were very supportive of it, and they still come to watch all my shows, and they're still very supportive. So, yeah. So, in your acting career, what do you hope to achieve in the uh, long term of it? Oh, <laughs> um, who would you say is your favourite actor in like anything? Oh, <laughs> I I do I I think it changes, but at the moment, um, I went to watch a. Uh, a fantastic revival of a play in London um, called Jerusalem and the lead actor in that is uh, Sir Mark Rylance and I think definitely he's my favourite actor. Um, and what was your first, would you say, major role in acting? Uh, first major role in acting. I mean, to be honest, this is probably the first major acting role that I've done. Um, I'm still quite new to doing a lot of shows. Um, prior to that, I did uh, uh, recently Panto in York, where I played Peter Pan. Uh, so that was another experience where it was sort of playing a lead role. Um, yeah, but th this feels like the big, uh, the chunkiest role that I've done in terms of acting. How did you like prepare for the role? Was it difficult because um, the character is so different to you as a person? Do you think it was like difficult, or did it come more naturally? Yeah, I mean, I I initially started by reading the script, which is always a good way to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, I read the book as well after that, and uh, I made a lot of um, highlights in the book and sort of. Uh, looking at key moments for the character. So what techniques do you use to make a character like more believable to an audience? Oh, this takes me back to um, <laughs> A-level. <laughs> um, uh, do you guys know about Stanislavski at all? Yeah. 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 Um, I think a lot of that goes into the sort of the uh, naturalism is uh, there's the idea of given circumstance and then emotional memory which is uh you know emotional memory is essentially taking influence or inspiration from something that happened to you before in your life and then using that to sort of understand how your character might react to a situation have you ever had to enact a character that was in opposition to your morals and values yeah, I mean, I think I think this character is. Uh, 
Yeah, he kills a few people, so... <laughs> yeah, um, I would hope that's an opposition yeah, to you. Yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was slightly uh, in opposition, but I, I think sometimes... Slightly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is your best memory, either as an actor or of Lord of the Flies? Uh, best memory as an actor? Um, I always love doing a show... Uh, any show and you do the rehearsal process and you you uh you could rehearse for you know a month um you know uh but always for me it's that first show that you do where all of a sudden you have an audience which you don't have before it's it's you know you'll be performing the show to an empty room and then all of a sudden you go out on the first night and there's you know 700 people there and it's 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 always exciting and uh, sort of taking that step into the unknown. It was amazing. Um, <coughs> I could not believe they killed Piggy. Spoiler alert. Um, no, it was an absolutely amazing play. I was like, I'm at a loss for words as I really am. Yeah, wow. It was, I, I loved everything about it. I loved, all, I thought the acting was amazing from all of the characters. It shows that if there ever is a World War Three, that it would be disastrous. It shows that without, with a lack of order, there's a struggle for power and leadership. Which, which only ever ends up in, with conflict. Conflict. Love the cases. Love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Going to the Devil, by me, Martin Riley. In the front bedroom he shared with his grandmother, Aggie Ann, his auntie Maureen and his little brother Danny, ten-year-old Michael Peter James O'Reilly was struggling to get to sleep. Auntie Maureen, propped up on pillows by the open window, drew deeply on a melancholy cig, exhaling woes with each out-breath. Next to her, his age-pickled Granny Aggie wheezed, gurgled and snored, while young Danny, who shared the bed with Mikey, mumbled and thrashed his legs as he dream-kicked dream footballs into the back of the net. None of this would normally stop Mikey dropping off, but tonight was different. Tonight... 
the sound of his beating heart was the thud of Beelzebub's boots on the stairs. Tonight, with one hand pointing to his thorn-crowned sacred heart, eyes illuminated by a flickering nightlight, Jesus glared at him accusingly from the framed icon on the mantelpiece. Tonight, the cheeks of this freckle-faced, ginger-haired Catholic altar boy burned blood-red as he remembered the crimes he'd committed that morning, the sacrilegious act itself and the attempted cover-up. No way he'd make Chief Acolyte now. Likely as not, he'd be excommunicated. Through the open window, he hears the distant hum of traffic, the buzz of a low-flying aeroplane, the swish and thump of a swan beating along the canal, and decides that... First thing tomorrow, he'll pack a bag and run away. Mikey didn't remember falling asleep. He didn't think he was asleep at all. It was the next day. He'd been too chicken-hearted to do a runner and was walking along Western Road to St Patrick's Primary School, heavy with fear, guilt, shame, a string-corded plimsoll bag and the weight on his soul of what Mikey guessed must be the most grievously mortal of the Catholic Truth Society top seven sins. Danny had run ahead with his mates for an early football session in the playground, but Mikey's leaden feet were moving in tedious, dream-slow motion, far too slowly as he crossed Southall High Street to dodge out of the way of the 232 to Hounslow West. It happened just as his teacher, Sister Francesca, had said it would. Just imagine it, Michael O'Reilly, your soul chock full of mortal sin, and you step out in front of a boss, and it knocks your head off. Straight to the devil, Mikey, straight as an arrow to the eternal fires of hell. A screech of brakes, a thunderous body-shuddering bang, and next second... He was watching his very own ginger-haired noggin roll along the high street like a football, though with what eyes he couldn't imagine. It was as if he could see with his stomach. He felt sick. The air shimmered. And now he was somewhere else. He hadn't gone to hell, though, or at least not the fiery pit of hell. They were in his school classroom, with its familiar smell of stale milk, sweat, urine and almond-flavoured paper glue. It reminded him of a movie he'd seen last Christmas, except there were no costumed juries from world history. There were instead five or six saints in their tangled and broken martyred bodies, perched uncomfortably on children's chairs, one headless like him, others carrying wheels, crosses and assorted instruments of torture. On the other side of the aisle sat an equal number of devils, one or two traditional with horns and tails, others more monstrous, with cadaverous skulls and peeling skin like the zombies in Mikey's collection of Tales from the Crypt comic books, the ones Granny Aggie said would rot his brain. Between the saints and devils, on a metal stand... Mikey could see 
a Super 8 film projector aimed at the blackboard, which had been covered over with a white bedsheet. Mikey stood uncomfortably to the left of the teacher's desk, which displayed a Bible on a stand, a lit candle in a bronze candlestick, and a silver communion bell. Behind the desk sat Father Kelly in full mass regalia, cassock, chasuble and beretta, at six foot seven, still at big glutinous nose level with Mikey, with, protruding from his lips, one of the foul-smelling roll-ups he smoked incessantly. On the nature table to his right were exhibited some sprouting carrot tops, a small reliquary of the kind made to contain a, a lock of St Bridget's hair or St Christopher's toe-bone, and, displayed on a glass cake-stand, Mikey's head, a thin line of blood where it had been severed at the neck, looking more axe-communicated than bludgeoned off by a bus. There was whispering and face-pulling, the saints scowling and tutting at the devils, the devils making fart noises and poking out yard-long forked red tongues. One of the devils had a catapult and was about to fire a gobwet blotting paper missile at St Catherine when Father Kelly smacked a plastic ruler on his desk. The commotion stopped. All eyes were turned on Mikey. Kelly tinkled the mass bell. The window blinds dropped and all by itself the projector began to whir. God's eyes see all, said a sepulchral voice from the ceiling. Even your most secret thoughts. Mikey wanted to run, but was held firm by some supernatural force as the film in the projector rolled relentlessly and his own divinely recorded voice crackled at him from a pair of plastic Woolworth speakers. Oh, I'm going to be late. The images flicker onto the bedsheet and Mikey sees himself yesterday morning before school starts arriving in a fluster at St Patrick's Church to serve early mass. He runs into the sacristy, hurriedly slips the black cassock and white cotter over his head and feeling a sudden twinge in his bowels heads for the toilets. Oh, shit! He hears himself think aloud as he bangs into Father Kelly, toking on a roll-up and already togged up in holy mass gear. Where do you think you're going, Michael? The priest demands, stubbing out the cigarette in a tiny ashtray. They've been waiting ten minutes out there. And with a hand in proportion to his height, he propels Mikey firmly onto the altar steps. The saints and devils watch attentively as the whirring film reel changes gear and runs at double speed through the first half of the Latin Mass. There are only four or five in the congregation and it usually goes quickly. Mikey is intoning the responses with a strangulated, constipated hum. While his secret thoughts say, I can do it, I can do it. I just need to hold on, clench bum cheeks hard and concentrate. Some of the mass involves the server walking about and fetching things for the priest, which Mikey does with a, a waddling mince while thinking, 
if I can just get past communion. He always rushes the last bit. I can race to the bog soon as we're off the altar. He manages to intone the Nicene Creed. Great, do we noon them day and patrimony protect him? While wondering if he might risk an emergency runner to the lavatory, but sees Kelly's stern eye warning him that he's due for a lathering for his garbled Latin, and worse in store if there's any more shenanigans. Bloody big-nosed bastard! He hears himself think through the speakers. The saints tut, flinch, and wince with pain. The devils hoot and cheer! Father Kelly, looming behind the desk, scowls and pats the ruler menacingly on his palm. The film rolls relentlessly. The epistle, the gospel. Come on, come on! No sermon, thank God! The big magical moment, the consecration, on the home straight now. Please, 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 Jesus, please, Jesus, let no one come up for communion! More groans from the saints as they hear Mikey's sacrilegious prayer cackle from out the speakers. The devils bang their desk lids in delight. Father Kelly teases a line of old Hoban into a cigarette paper, nods, and the film reel spins on to show an old lady, eyes misty with fervour, rise from her knees and slowly, so slowly, make her way to the communion rails to kneel and receive with her wavering tongue the unleavened bread that is now the divinity. There's no way round it. Mikey has to walk down with a silver salver to place underneath her chin, lest any crumbs of Godhead fall to the floor. No! He hears himself scream in his head as the necessary leg movement undoes all his hard work and a large turd makes its happy way into his underpants. The devils are chanting, What a shit! and hooting with laughter. St Sebastian, stuck all over with arrows like a holy hedgehog, has fainted on his school desk. Mikey turns away in shame from the makeshift screen and sees, with the pseudo-eyes in his sickened stomach, that the cheeks on his head on the nature table are as red as the sprouting carrots. There is no way around this. God has seen all, heard his most secret thoughts, and there's worse to come. If I can just, if I can just, Mike hears himself mumble, if I can just keep it in my pants. But these are the days before hip-hugging briefs, and as he walks back afterwards to the side table with a salver, the heavy turd slips through the cotton shorts, down his right trouser leg, and lands under cover of his long cassock on the polished floor, downstage left of the altar steps. Gasps from the school desks. The devils are open-mouthed with wonder and delight. The saints bury their heads in their hands. Oh, shit, says Mikey's thought track once again, this time in a less metaphorical sense. And the Akashic soundtrack goes double speed as Mikey's adrenaline fueled train of consciousness flicks into emergency scheming gear. 
Anyone seen it? Heard it? Smelt it? No sign of any reaction? Old lady has eyes down. Kelly waiting impatiently for the final ceremonial finger washing. Step over it. Ignore it. That's the way. The last torturous minutes of the mass stretched to infinity as Mikey scrambled incoherent internal dialogue anticipates the gasp of horror, the accusing finger, the crack round the ear. But it doesn't happen. It's... Ite bis Deo gratias, and now we're out of here only. Only there it lies, brown, bulbous, and looking to Mikey as big as a football on the shiny, polished floor. I'll find it here afterwards, screams Mikey's thought track from the speaker, and they'll know it's mine. There's a crescendo of panic-related white noise. Then the film flickers on to show Mikey leading the way off, bearing the Bible and looking resolutely ahead as his right foot, under cover of his long cassock, but revealed in mortifying close-up by the divine camera, connects with the sacrilegious excrement and kicks it firmly off the altar to roll under the communion rails and into the congregation. Unbelievably, perhaps just because it is so ludicrously unbelievable, no one notices. Total uproar in the classroom. The devil's cheering louder than the Liverpool cop after an extra time goal against Everton. The martyred saints' wounds spout fresh blood. The film in the projector runs wild and catches fire. A chant begins as though from a thousand voices. Guilty! 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 The carrot tops shrivel. Father Kelly stubs out his roll-up and reaches for the bell on his desk. By bell, he intones, and when it rings, the noise is Notre Dame deafening. Mikey's head, open eyes staring blankly, starts to swivel around on the cake stand before flying off like a helicopter and reattaching itself to Mikey's neck. By book! Kelly slams the Bible on the desk and thunderclaps echo round the classroom as the lid of the little reliquary flies open, revealing within its silvered interior Mikey's offending brown lock. And by candle, the priest concludes, before taking a deep breath, blowing out the candle and blowing, blowing, blowing the world away. He felt sick. The air shimmered, and he was in yet another place. There were no hellfire flames. He was in the second-floor detention room in school, but without chairs and desks. Around him stood a variety of classmates, who, like him, were up to their knees in stinking sewerage. Mikey couldn't help asking the question he always asked other kids in detention. What are you lot in here for? A babble of voices answer with a selection of the usual trivial misdemeanours. Cheek! Dumb insolence! Homework late! Fighting! Swearing! Disobedience! <laughs> what about you? asks one. Mikey reddens. Um, uh, lateness, he lies. 
Don't know why they've got a standing in shit, says another. But it's better than being eaten alive by monster crocodiles. It's then that Mikey remembers the horrible old joke and what follows next. No! You, you're wrong! Run! He shouts. But there's nowhere to run to. A bell clangs. The arse of Satan, with its own extra eyes, nose and mouth, appears at the door and calls out, All right, you lot, break over on your heads. Retching and spluttering, Mike sits up in bed. For a few seconds, he rejoices that it's all been a dream and that he has escaped Satan's punishment to fit the crime. Then notices that he's alone. No Danny? Granny Aggie and Auntie Mo were already up and dressed. Why have they let him sleep in? He'll be late for school. No, wait, he, he won't go to school. He'll have a stomachache and avoid any trouble awaiting him, plus a plausible medical excuse should his large deposit have been identified. He stumbles out of bed, ready to groan and clutch his stomach, which he immediately does, except he's not pretending because Danny has just burst into the bedroom wearing shorts and a West Ham vest and thrown a plastic football at it, momentarily winding him. Oh, Dan, you idiot! Mike gasps. What are you playing at? Why aren't you ready for school? Ah, you're the idiot, laughs Danny. It's Saturday. Saturday? Of course. A reprieve. And then, oh no, Sunday mass tomorrow, high mass. And he's meant to be swinging the thurible and smoking the church out with frankincense. The best job. But what if, what if... Oh, it's too horrible to contemplate. He'll need more than a bellyache. He'll need a lifelong crippling illness to earn forgiveness for this. Forgiveness? The word switches on Mikey's mental Machiavellian calculating machine. Saturday plus forgiveness equals the holy sacrament of confession. This afternoon, a priest would be in the little booth with a screen between him and the kneeling penitent. The priest wouldn't know who he was. Nothing confessed under the seal of confession could ever be revealed. He'd be free of mortal sin, free of guilt, and sleep easy in bed that night. He just had to make it to church that afternoon without being hit by a bus. So... Unusually for Mikey, when he came to the high street, he walked up to the zebra crossing, looked both ways twice and made sure the traffic had come to a standstill before racing across as if all the devils in hell were after him, which in this case he couldn't rule out. He'd made it. Blithely, he strolled along the path to St Patrick's, only to catch sight of Sister Francesca in the church porch, gossiping with... Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, the old lady. The old lady who tottered up to take communion the previous morning. But she'd seen him and there was no turning back now. holding a bin bag and wearing yellow plastic gloves. Good afternoon, sister. Good afternoon, Michael O'Reilly. 
We haven't seen you at confession for a few weeks. Uh, Mikey considers the implied question, decides to take the Fifth Amendment and steps towards the open door. We've had a terrible business this morning, Michael, Sister Francesca announces with layers of Gothic Irish undertone and overtone. Some dirty, dirty person has made a dirty mess in the church yesterday. She can't bring herself to elaborate further, but indicates the gloves and bag to show the depth of the dirtiness. We've had to do a big clean, Michael. A big, big clean. Mikey hesitates. The two women are looking at him. He feels his cheeks burning as he holds their gaze, but no more words are said, and his Machiavelli brain tells him they have no evidence. They said yesterday, and that could be any time yesterday. Inspired, he makes a show of inspecting the soles of his shoes, as if understanding that they meant treading muck into the church, and is saved by the arrival of another customer for confession, Mr Swan, head of the Knights of St Columba, the Catholic Freemasonry. Their attention falters as they greet him, and Mikey slips away into the cool, dusky interior of the church. The shepherd's hut-sized wooden confessional stands halfway down the nave. The priest's side closed and curtained, and the penitent's side door open for customers. Mikey doesn't hesitate. Once inside, he'll be safe from further interrogation by Sister Fran and safe from Lucifer, the Prince of Flies and Father of Lies. He steps into the capsule, shuts the door, kneels before the curtain-covered grill that hides his identity from the priest and goes into the routine. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It is... Mikey hesitates and estimates. Uh, six weeks since my last confession. These are my sins. Mikey warms up with a few harmless disobediences, lies, lazinesses, late for mass, all of them lightweight stuff, classed as venial in the Catholic catechism. He takes a breath. Is he going to drop the big one, so to speak? And I had a poo in the church, he blurts out. It was an accident. I couldn't help it. There's a pause of three heartbeats. And I didn't own up because I was scared. Then, as an afterthought, And I hit my brother this morning because he winded me with a football. There's a long pause. Then a low voice whispers his penance. Five decades of the Holy Rosary for the lies, a firm act of contrition, and to make reparation, you should volunteer to help with church cleaning next week. Not too bad, thinks Mikey. Then the priest goes into the magic ritual. Ipsius te absolvo et omni vinculo. And Mikey starts to relax, shriven and safe, and best of all, the very best of all, he didn't say he had to own up. The priest finishes with an Amen, and Mikey gets ready to run out into the bright free sunshine and play ball in the park when there's a loud <coughs> from behind the curtain. The grill opens, and a hand reaches through with a collection of coins. Oh, and Michael, says the gravelly voice, could you pop round the corner and fetch me a half ounce of old Holborn? 
Mikey's brain, soul, spirit, his very self, splits in two and will never be whole again. Yes, father, one half of him intones. Then clutching the copper and silver in a sweaty right fist, he stumbles out of the confessional, past the bleeding life-size crucified Jesus, past the grotto where the blue and white virgin weeps for us in vain, out of St. Patrick's Church and left along the high street to Iverson's the tobacconists. Zombie body steering on automatic, Mikey's Machiavel mind crunches the data. He knows, but secrets of the confession, he can't tell what he knows. But he knows, and I know he knows, and he knows, I know he knows, I know he knows. And from now on when he looks at me, I'll think he's thinking, dirty, 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 like Sister Fran and the old lady. Oh, Jesus, what if they know? What if everybody knows? Dirty, dirty, dirty. By the time he arrives at the tobacconist's, the rash of shame has spread like wildfire, so that it's a completely red-skinned, red-eyed, red-haired boy with freckles like dark scales who pushes open the shop door. A jangle of bells summons Mr Iverson to the counter, where he stands in weary expectation. Muffled traffic noise, light laughter from passers-by, a housefly settles on the sweets display, and gets to work. Deep in its new underground fortress, Mikey's Machiavelli mind is making its final calculations, and a radical way forward is emerging. Speak up, says the shopkeeper. Cat got your tongue? There's a pause of three heartbeats. Then, when Michael Peter James O'Reilly opens his mouth, out it flickers, long, red, and clearly and irrevocably forked. Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little, no, no, little, no, no, little, 